0: It's good to see you all here this morning. It's a little bit of a lighter crowd, but I guess we can blame COVID for that. Uh, I think a few people heard that I was preaching this morning, so they probably decided to skip out, but that's okay. Um, Less people makes me less nervous, which is good. For those who don't know, if if you're new or visiting, my name's Tom, and I'm actually one of the pastors here at the church, and I get the privilege of looking after the families, which is the kids and the youth uh, within this place. So it's it's an absolute privilege to be able to serve you guys and to be able to, um, to be up here preaching today. Also, just want to thank a couple of friends and some family who've come out for this morning. I do actually, yeah, sincerely appreciate it. It means an awful lot to have you guys supporting me. Um, My parents and my uh, in-laws, they've all decided to go over to Canada for six weeks. Um, Again, they couldn't get any further away from me, so that's just fine. But I'm glad that you guys have stepped up to the plate, which is really good. You know, it's interesting. I'm usually only allowed to speak to the youth and to the kids of the church. However, I drew a bit of a short straw and I get the opportunity now to share with you guys in this service. It's, uh, it's been a bit of a whirlwind this last 12 months. It was about 12 months ago exactly that I actually started at this church. Um, not long before that, I was working just a regular sales job and didn't really have uh, yeah, much idea of where I was to be going. But the Lord pretty profoundly called me and led me into this place, and here I am today. And 12 months later, I'm up the front here about to bring the word. The other exciting thing that's happened in the last couple of months is I've actually found out that my wife is pregnant, so I'm going to be a dad, which is very cool. <laughs> I'm very, very excited about it. Whilst that's also very exciting, the other thing that I've been working through is my Bible college studies. Uh, That's been a lot of fun, learning about early church history and uh, all the martyrs and all the exciting things like that. But one of the things that I've learned at Bible college so far is that you have to start a sermon by engaging with people, engage with the congregation. So I figured the best way that I could do that this morning is that I'm about to become a dad, I need to engage with you all, is I'm going to tell you a couple of dad jokes um, that's what I'm most excited for about being a father. To be honest, it's going to be great having a kid. Looking forward to it, but telling dad jokes unashamedly is going to be awesome. I've done it for years, and I'm not even a father then. So here we go. Got two of them lined up. If you don't laugh, that's fine. They're dad jokes. When two vegans get into an argument, is it still called a beef? <laughs> why? Uh, why couldn't the bicycle stand up by itself? because it was too tired. Oh, I meant to groan, that's right. Excellent. So now I have sufficiently engaged with you all. I've ticked the box from Bible College. I've uh, ticked the box, made you laugh. Um, I might pray and we'll get into it, hey? Jesus, we love you. We thank you for what you have done in our lives and I thank you for what you've done in my life. And I thank you that there is great power in your word. And I ask, Lord God, that as I speak, as I share this morning, that it won't be my thoughts or my words that come through, but it will be your spirit ministering. And I pray, Lord God, that you would encourage and equip and do what it is that you need to do in your people here in this place this morning. Um, Jesus, we love you and we thank you. Amen. Very good. Well, this morning we're continuing on in the Gospel of John. I think this church has been doing it for about the last eight years, so it's good. We're up to the eighth chapter, which is very exciting. But as the youngest pastor here, with the least number of qualifications, I have been gifted what I think is one of the most contentious passages of Scripture. Why is it contentious? Well, in some versions of your Bible, it actually doesn't exist. Um, If you look in the back of uh, chapter 7 of uh, of John, it usually says something like, to the effect of this, the earliest manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have John chapter 7, verses 53 through to 8, verse 11. A few manuscripts may include these verses wholly or in part after John chapter 7 or John 21 or Luke 21 or Luke 24. So it's actually not in some versions of the Bible. Now, I was told a few weeks ago that if I'm to open a can of worms in church, I have to be prepared to eat them. The more you open, the more you have to eat. So I am going to open it just a little bit, but I'm only going to crack it slightly and eat just two or three worms before we read this passage today. As I think, although there is much to dispute about this text, whether it's in Scripture or not, uh, there's actually still a lot that we can learn from it. If I was to give a hundred of you some pen and paper and tell you to write down my full name, my date of birth and my credit card details, so they're this, so Thomas Graham Bizzle, 26th of August, 1994, this is 0123... No, I'm not going to read you my credit card. (laughs) But if I did that gave you a pen and paper and you wrote those down. You would all write down the same words, the same numbers. However, your spelling, your order and your punctuation would likely be different. It would also be very safe to assume that some of you would actually miss a letter. Or you might get a number wrong or get something a bit crossed up. You see, is Thomas spelt with a H or no? Is Bizzle spelt with one L or two? Now, if 95 of you were to write my name and date and credit card details exactly the same, then you can be sure that it's correct. Even if there is minor differences in spelling and grammar, and even some of the text might be missing, you can still be sure that it's saying the same thing. However, if five of you were to write the wrong name, the wrong date, or it stood completely out of character from what I had asked you to write, well, it would be known as incorrect. Now, you have to remember that when the scriptures were taking place about 2,000 years ago, no one had a camera, no one had a recorder, no one had a photocopier. Everything that was seen was had to be um, handwritten and had to be painstakingly copied by hand by the monks of the day. Perhaps this is a little bit too simple of a way of viewing it, however, I think it's really helpful in this text today as it provides a very basic idea in what the theological world calls textual criticism. See, textual criticism, it's an art, or perhaps even the science, of evaluating and restoring original texts. See, the Bible was not written in one go on a laptop and then saved for all of us to see onto a USB stick. And because of this, we don't actually have a full copy of it all in one go or in one document. Any document back then was written on paper, very fragile paper that likely didn't last 50 years, let alone hundreds. So why am I talking about this this morning in relation to John chapter 8? Well, we don't actually have a full copy of the Gospel of John. What we do have, though, is about 24,000 manuscripts that have all been evaluated, assessed, and then checked for likeness to confirm what was intended. Now, the story that we get to in uh, verses 1 to 11 of chapter 8, it's very, very unique. As unlike the rest of John, where they actually have very large sections of it, it doesn't actually exist anywhere before the 5th century. And you see, whilst it appears in many different manuscripts from that time onwards, it doesn't actually exist before then or in any of the early Greek writings. As I said earlier, many of the passages of where this is actually found, it's found after uh, Luke sometimes, it's found after John 21, it's all over the shop. There's actually no real consensus on where it needs to exist. In fact, quite a few scholars who are much smarter than I am, uh, much, much smarter, they would argue that it doesn't even sound like John's writings, that it actually sounds far more like Luke. So how did this passage get into our Bible today? Well, it only came into, into the scriptures actually through the King James Version back in about 1611. And at the time, it was because it was coming over to English and they were just using what were accepted manuscripts of that time to best produce their Bible. They were simply passing on to them what they saw as the best and most reliable information at the time. So the question is this, does this actually change anything? Because there is an argument to be had that we could say this is an original Greek Never, It isn't actually from the Word of God, and therefore, let's just pack it up and go home. And some of you might love that. it would be a really, really short sermon, and I could be done in the next two minutes. But I'm going to argue that we don't do that, because I think the reason is that even though it might have been included later, it doesn't actually alter our knowledge of Jesus. Even though it's a late addition, I think it still sounds like Jesus. And there are many, many scholars who believe it to be a very authentic episode from Jesus' life. That was just added to the text by a well-meaning scribe. So whilst these verses, I think, should be treated with care, I don't think there's any issue with us treating them as authentic. No essential doctrine is changed by accepting or discarding these verses that we're going to look at today. I'd even say this, if these passages of text were included in the Scriptures, would we still get the same understanding of Jesus? Yeah, I think we do. But if they were left out of the Scriptures, would we still get the same understanding of Jesus? absolutely. I'm certainly not advocating that we need to be adding stuff to scripture, Uh, however, I think we can see in these passages today that they certainly speak truthfully to the character of Jesus, to the rule of the day, and to an incredibly intense desire that they had um, to get rid of him, to try and wipe him out of the picture. So how this ended up in the text, be it by John, a disciple of his, or another apostle, is not actually the point that I want to focus on today. We're going to look at the character of Christ. Final thing I want to say on this before I do read the passage is just that uh, being a Christian doesn't mean that we can't seek to validate things. This is probably for some of the younger ones here in this room. We actually have a lot of reason that we can trust the scriptures that we have and we can believe them in their fullness. So don't let a passage like today be a discouragement to the accuracy of scripture or a stumbling block to your faith just because there's an element of uncertainty as how we got to it. If you look up on the screen, I know it's a little bit small and I know my grandparents are going to struggle to read it, but I'll explain it to you afterwards. I've put up a chart, and this was hugely helpful to me when I heard this about a decade ago. I think it proves the point. The New Testament, despite some minor challenges like this text we're looking at today, it is by far and away the most accurate scripture that, or the most accurate document from that time that actually exists. You might recognise some of the names in that list down the left-hand side of those authors. Plato, Caesar, Aristotle, Homer, not the Simpson... Um, These are all real historical figures who wrote and recorded what happened in that early history. And you know, when we read it as a society today, there aren't too many people, if anyone, who doubts what they wrote. We pretty commonly go, yep, that happened, we believe what was said, and we carry on. But I want you to see something here that was incredibly helpful to my faith as we look at textual criticism in general. I I trust it's helpful to you as well. I want you to look across from the first column there where it says the date that the document was first written and then the time from when it was written to its first earliest copy that was produced. As you can see there, almost all of them, (laughs) 750 years, 1,200 years, 800 years, it was an awfully long time from when the original document was uh, penned to when it was first copied. And the longer that time gap, the more opportunity for error there is to come into it. If you also look at the the number of copies, well, it starts at the top with two, right down the bottom to Homer, and you've got 643. So there's quite a few copies there for him, but for a lot of them, there isn't that many recorded. But now I want you to look at the New Testament documents. You can see that they were done within 100 years of when the events actually happened. So there's very, very limited time for error to have actually snuck into that. But probably most importantly... There's 5,600 copies of scripture that have been found in the Greek. And they all actually have a 99.5% accuracy. What does that mean? As they've been read, as they've been analysed, they're all saying the same thing to a 99.5% accuracy. I think it's remarkable. And what's even crazier about it is that's just the original in Greek. It doesn't include another 19,000 copies that have been since found in Syrian, Latin, Coptic and Aramaic. They're all saying the same thing. Church you can rest assured that God's Word stands true today as it did 2,000 years ago. It is preserved, it is truthful and it is reliable. So as we turn to this text today, know that God's Word is alive and active and that it is still as effective as today as it was back then. The world can try and make you doubt it, but you don't have to. It's, it stands true. So I'm going to put this can of worms away. If you, I want to open your Bible to John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, it will be up on the screen. We're reading from the ESV version here this morning. Very good stuff, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This, they said, to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who um, who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones, Until Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. You know, you might have seen this image before or something similar. It'll come up on the screen shortly. It presents to us a moral dilemma. Do you pick killing one person to save the other five? And so, who are you going to pick? See, it's easy for man to make a judgment call when it's just a number. See, surely you'd pick the one over the five. I mean, what if it's five kittens and one dog? Now, that's a joke. You'd kill the kittens every day of the week. (laughs) I don't don't care if it's a thousand kittens. You'd you'd pick the dog, especially if it's my dog. But seriously, though, how do we respond to this? I mean, what do we do if it's five old men who've been convicted of, of, of crimes, having perhaps murdered, stolen cars, money laundered? And then on the other track might just be one teenage boy who's stolen a loaf of bread. I mean, that makes it a bit harder, I think. You see, it'd be easy for us to justify it and say, well, you know, they, I guess the old men, they've done the wrong thing, they've done their time, let's get rid of them. But I guess you could say, well, it's one life to save the other five. What do you do? It's a difficult spot for us to be a judge on. You know, it seems to me that in today's society, we're trending away from an absolute truth, And that I guess we're becoming more and more subjective about what is actually right and wrong. What is right and wrong seems to be dictated by public opinion and personal feelings rather than an absolute. And we, I guess we people, we hate the idea of that. We hate having someone or something, I guess, to claim to be the final say on anything. And I think it plays into our earthly nature. You see, we like to compare ourselves and make comments or remarks like, yeah, well, I'm not as bad as they are. I mean, hey, they committed murder or assault. I just stole a chocolate bar from a shop. We can be so, so quick to downplay our own sin and to project it onto others. And we could almost get to a point of thinking that we are somehow not that bad and uh, without blame. You see, we want to become our own judge. And sure, we might be able to do this with some small things like what colour car to buy or where to go for lunch, even though that can be hard to decide at times. But when it comes to issues of life, Death and judgment, well, frankly, we are not qualified to make this decision, but we need someone who is. Jesus, in this passage of text, I think he's presented with his uh, train track dilemma. He's minding his own business, doing what he usually does in the temple. He's teaching. He's sitting down with those in his audience. I mean, there's nothing particularly unusual about it. It's all until this woman is dragged before him. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, they bring in this woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. Now, for those of you who don't know what a Pharisee is, they're essentially a Jewish person whose role and purpose was to ensure a very, very strict observance of rites and of ceremonies, and particularly that the law of Moses was upheld. Now, we don't know how they found this woman or what their connection to her was. All we are told is that she would have been sleeping with someone outside of marriage and that she was caught in the act of it. My educated guess is that she would have been no doubt naked, ashamed and pretty guilt-ridden with what she had done. And I think she would have known that she actually was going to be punished for it. She grew up in that time. So while she was found physically unclothed, she was also found in sin. She was in a pretty rotten place to be. So the real dilemma here this morning is this. This woman was in a relationship outside of marriage and she was dragged before Jesus, alone, not with the man, only herself, and placed at the feet of Jesus. Now, you need to know this morning that the Pharisees weren't bringing this woman to Jesus because they cared about her. In fact, I don't think they gave a rip what happened to her. Don't even think it crossed their mind. They were sold out. They were intent on getting Jesus backed into a corner where he could be falsely accused. And not only falsely accused, but also discredited to try and make him, I guess, to be someone who didn't like the law. What better place to do this than in a Jewish temple? They were wanting him to pick a train track, to make a decision, to be backed into a corner, and to either actually get rid of him completely, or at least discredit him and make him not valid. You see, Jesus was not popular with the Pharisees of the day. He was gaining a following of disciples, and he would often challenge the hard-heartedness of these Pharisees, for they had seen law-keeping to be more important than that even of grace. I mean, further to this, Jesus was seen to have also been continually breaking the laws. Well, if I quickly look at John chapter 5, verse 8, would have heard this story a few weeks ago. It was about the paralytic who's been crippled for many years. Listen to this. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once a man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is a Sabbath. Law forbids you to carry your mat. Jesus healed a man who had been lame for a very, very long time. And whilst he should have been caused for tremendous joy, it actually just wound him up. It made them really, really upset because he broke the Sabbath by telling him to pick up his mat. He did some work on that day. So Jesus was not favoured by these Pharisees and as such, they were intent on getting rid of him. So what's this big decision that Jesus needs to decide on and what are the obstacles of it? Well, the first one is this that for Jesus to be a rabbi or a teacher of the law, it was incredibly important that he upheld the law of Moses. And one of those laws is that you shall not commit adultery. If you do, well, sorry, but you're going to be stoned to death. So for Jesus to be a law-keeping rabbi, he needed to affirm the law. However, The challenge is, at this time in Jerusalem, they were occupied by the Romans. Now, the whole nation of Israel was subjugated to Roman law. And whilst the Romans were actually a little bit relaxed to those nations, allowing them to have many of their own practices and ways, there was one rule that could never be broken, never be changed, and it's this, you must obey the law of Rome. And the law of Rome did not actually permit someone to be executed for simply committing adultery. But they also didn't allow someone to be executed by being stoned to death. It's actually the reason that Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross while he wasn't stoned to death by the Jews. So can you begin to see some of the problem here? If Jesus is to uphold the law of Moses and to say to kill this woman, well, the Pharisees, they're going to run straight to Pontius Pilate and they're going to say, look, this man's broken your laws. He's to be killed. However, if he doesn't uphold the law of Moses, then he's to be written off as a teacher. He'll be ineffective. He was, I guess he was trapped. How does he get out of this? Verse 7 of the text, that says this. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Okay, so Jesus recognises and he actually affirms the law. And you know what he does? He permits it to happen. And he actually sets out that the punishment should take place. He just makes this one very simple request, and he says, okay, you can do it, but just make sure that you're the um, only person here without sin. You can go first. You can start this off. Put your hand up if you've never sinned here before. Never sinned. Good, because if you had, put your hand up, then you just sinned by lying. (laughs) Church, you should all know this. Uh, No one here is without sin. All of us, all of the world has sinned, but sadly, the world actually fails to believe that. You know, this passage of text, I think, is often misapplied by churches or by Christians who say that it's, I guess, that you should never speak out about sin. And yes, whilst I'll agree it's the job of Jesus alone to be the final judgment on sin, this text isn't an example for us to ignore it and to do nothing about it or to keep living in it. I just don't see that at the heart of this text at all. In fact, I think the exact opposite is true here. See, Jesus showed this woman spectacular grace while still holding firm in calling her adultery what it is. It was a moral failure. It was sinful, and it needed to be punished. And he says the same thing to you and to me today. You see, Jesus hates sin. He delights in the law. And in this text, he affirms that she is to be punished and to be judged for her sins. And you might come up to me afterwards and say, yeah, but surely this isn't as bad as murder. I mean, she hasn't killed anyone. She's just slept with someone outside of marriage. Sounds a bit harsh, doesn't fit the crime. But see, for whatever reason, I think it's easy to think that all sins are equal. We like to be our own judge. Perhaps it's because we're in a society that doesn't talk about sin, that doesn't recognise it. And yes, in one sense, all sins are equal. I mean, James chapter 2, he says, for whoever keeps the law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So, yeah, there is an element where all sin separates us from God. But see, James's point here is that individual sins cannot be isolated. The Bible's commandments are all interconnected with the sole purpose of reflecting God's character and His holiness. And if even one is broken in rebellion, well, it goes against God Himself. And that person is deserving of nothing but separation from God forever. So, this passage does not say that you or I are to encourage sin or to live in it. It's a humbling message that we all are in need of the mercy of God. I'd also just add that Jesus actually shows no impartiality with this account either, with how sin is to be dealt with. He doesn't preface it by saying, oh, that's okay, I'll pass over your sins because you're young, I'll give you a second chance. Or he doesn't say, oh, you're really old, that's it, I've had enough with you. Jesus actually shows in this text that he loves the law and that all sin is punishable, and that all sin is not equal. If it were, well, the Pharisees could have just dragged someone before him who'd broken the Sabbath. But instead, they got someone who'd committed adultery, a punishable sin by death. So, we also see here that not all sins are equal before God. You know, and the Bible's clear that they're not either. I mean, Jesus, for example, when he was handed over to Pontius Pilate, it said, he who, was, uh, he who handed him over to Pontius Pilate was guilty of a greater sin than Pilate himself. Or you could look and see some of the distinctions that Jesus made between a speck and a plank in one's eye. Or go Old Testament and look at how God treated Sodom and Gomorrah. It was intensely different back then to someone who did some work on the Sabbath. So I think it's pretty clear to see that in God's eyes, uh, some sins are more offensive than others. So why is this important to see? Well, this passage of text is not telling us that sexual sin is to be regarded lightly. In fact, no sin is to be regarded lightly. Why? Well, Jesus affirms the law of Moses. It's to be punished by death. We need to see this morning that this woman in this story is stuffed. In fact, all of us are stuffed. We are all completely separated from God, deserving of nothing but separation and punishment. The Bible makes it pretty clear, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So when Jesus tells those to throw the stone, he's right. He's effectively right in declaring that she is to be killed. However, we know that's not how the story ends. And things take a pretty dramatic change. And we'll have a look at that now in verse 6, which will be up on the screen. And Jesus does something rather unique. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. How I wish we hadn't recorded what he wrote on the ground. You know, in all of his time on this earth, Jesus wrote nothing. He didn't write a single thing until we get to this passage where he writes twice and it's in one verse and we have no idea what he said. Would have been awesome. I think people would pay a lot of money to know what Jesus wrote on the dirt that day. But whatever he wrote was powerful enough and transformative enough that the accusers dropped their stones, ready to kill her, and they walked away. So what did Jesus write in the dirt? Well, I had my best guess, and I thought it might have been noughts and crosses, um, but I don't think it was that. And many people, much smarter than I, have uh, spent a lot of time pondering over, hypothesizing over what it could have been. But I came across a wonderful uh, demonstration and an articulation from R.C. Sproul. And he does the following. And I'm going to point out a couple of you, so just um, don't take it personally if I do point at you. But he does this. Adulterer. Fornicator. Liar. I think the people that day, they saw in the dirt what they least wanted to see. I think Jesus wrote down the sins of those around him. What else could he do to make them want to drop their stones, turn around and walk away? Then for them to see in the dirt, the one who knew their sins, who knew their heart better than they knew themselves, write down exactly what it is that they'd been doing wrong. You see, we can all stand like the Pharisees and make judgments pretty easily. We can look at others around us, we can all pick a train track line to choose from with relatively no difficulty until we have a realisation and understanding that it should be you on that track, it should be me on that track. Those people with Jesus, they all left that day knowing that they were not righteous enough to carry out that judgement. In fact, no one in that circle was able to carry out that judgement, to carry out that punishment. No one was rightfully allowed in that room, in that space, to judge that woman. Well, church, there was actually someone in that circle who was righteous and who was qualified to fulfill the law of Moses. And he was perfectly qualified to carry it out to the full extent of the law. And if he had done it, he would have been perfectly justified in doing so. When standing before Pontius Pilate in Luke 23, Jesus is found to be innocent. Pilate says, you brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I have found him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither is Herod, for he has sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. So there was one in that circle a day who rightfully could have carried out that judgment. And what does he say to this woman? Well, let's take a look at verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman... Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Just let that settle in for a moment. There was a person there who could do it, and he made a decision not to. Why? Because he's gracious. He's fair. And he is in the business of redeeming what is broken. He came to seek and he came to save the lost. I think it also speaks incredibly powerfully to his sovereignty and that he has the right to have mercy on whom he would have mercy. And you see, he doesn't have to have mercy on anyone, but he did to her and he does to you and he does to me today. Praise God for that. You know, we see a very similar characteristic displayed in the story of the paralytic in John 5. He encountered Jesus, he was healed, he was set free, Because this is Jesus. This is what he does. He's about redeeming what is broken. But Jesus then says something interesting to this paralytic, as he does to the woman in the text today. He says, sin no more. Jesus offers them grace and mercy, which they accepted. However, they are told to go and to live differently. Sin was not treated lightly by Jesus. But sinners... Were offered the opportunity to start a life anew. And it's a truly wonderful hope that I need to hear again today, and I think you will need to hear today as well. You need to know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That if you trust in Jesus, then you no longer stand condemned. And that, like this woman in the story today, you can know that you are free. You've been given a second chance. You can rejoice in that this day, and you should. And for those of you in this room who don't trust in Jesus, well, as a minister of the gospel, I say to you, put your trust in him. If you don't stand with Christ and you don't trust in him, then you stand alone. You stand condemned. However, that doesn't have to be the case at all. You know, you can't live a perfect life or obtain salvation through your works. And sure, you might know that. But the only way that you can ever be free is by trusting in the only righteous judge, the only one who stood in that circle that day, the only one who is without sin and the only one who stands at the gate and that is Jesus. And if you are a follower of Jesus here this morning as many of you have been for many years it doesn't mean that you throw your hands in the air and you keep on sinning. If the grace of God has been extended to you like this woman then you are free because of his mercy but you cannot continue in that sin. If this woman left Jesus and went back to the man that she was with then she had not changed. I love the way how early church writer Augustine summarises this passage of scripture beautifully as he goes through the Gospel of John. He says, and I quote, Look at the way our Lord's answer upheld justice without foregoing clemency. He was not caught in the scare his enemies had laid for him. It is they themselves who were caught in it. He did not say the woman should not be stoned, But then it would look as though he were opposing the law. But he had no intention of saying, let her be stoned, because he came not to destroy those he found, but to seek those who were lost. Mark his reply. It contains justice, clemency, and truth in full measure. What is this, Lord? Are you giving approval to immorality? Not at all. Take note of what follows. Go and sin no more. You see then that the Lord does indeed pass sentence, but it is sin that he condemns not people. One who would have approved of immorality would have said, neither will I condemn you. Go and live as you please. You can be sure that I will acquit you. However, once you sin, so however however much you sin, I will release you from all penalty and from the tortures of hell and the underworld. He did not say that. He said, neither will I condemn you. You need have no fear of the past, but beware of what you do in the future. Neither will I condemn you. I commanded in order to obtain what I have promised. I think it's pretty interesting as I look at the world around us, um, sounds like a pretty similar message to that last part, doesn't it? Go and live as you please, do what you want, but uh, it just condemns you. you stand judged. The only way to find freedom and to find life fully is in the person of Christ that 's to get close to him Jesus, I just i. Uh, oh, oh. Thank you. I'm in awe of what you have done for that woman, for the grace and the mercy, and how you you made a decision. And you were just in both ways. Thank you, Lord, that you don't let sin go unpunished. Thank you that you are a righteous and a holy God. Thank you that you are a God of second chances, that you are a God who is in the business of redeeming. We just give you all praise, honour and glory this morning. Amen.